Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel V. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Judas and Matthias, Human Decisions and Divine Destiny. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 20th, 2012. In his rockumentary movie called It Might Get Loud, Director David Guggenheim tells the stories of three famous rock guitarists whose professional lives span 50 years. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, The Edge from U2, and Jack White of The White Stripes. In an interview, Guggenheim notes how even if you're not a, rock, a fan of rock music, you'll love the movie because of many of the things said in the movie are universal. My favorite scene occurs in Mount Temple Comprehensive High School in Dublin, where Edge was a high school teenage student. The school is closed and empty, so Edge's voice echoes in the hallways. He walks up to a bulletin board and recalls how in 1976, a 14-year-old Larry Mullen posted a sign asking if anyone wanted to start a band. Six people responded. One quit after the first practice, a second left in a few weeks, and a third was edged out after a year. That left Mullen on drums, Adam Clayton on bass, David Evans on guitar, and Paul Hewson, later known as Bono, on vocals. At first the group was called Feedback, then The Hype, and finally U2. We were really, really bad, said Edge. That, of course, was 150 million records ago. As Edge looked at the bulletin board, he paused, pondered, and then said, I could have been a banker. Such was the mystery of his personal destiny, which mystery is, as Guggenheim noted, a universal experience for all of us. How can anyone fully explain how they arrived at where they are today? The reading from Acts this week introduces two men, both of whom were part of the inner circle of Jesus's 12 apostles. For 2,000 years, the name Judas Iscariot has epitomized infamy, treachery, and tragedy. As for Matthias, despite his importance as the 13th apostle who replaced Judas, history consigned him to anonymity and obscurity. Since Acts chapter 1 is the only passage about Matthias in Scripture, we know nothing else about him except for some disparate traditions in early Christian literature. As I meditate on the lives of these two followers of Jesus, I find it difficult to understand how or why each one ended up where he did. Such is the mystery of human decisions and divine destiny, both theirs and ours. With his infamous kiss of betrayal, Acts 1.16 says that Judas served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. But why? How could he have committed such a deplorable act? 
Three scriptures locate the explanation outside of and beyond Judas' own choices. John's Gospel this week says that Judas was, quote, doomed to destruction, John 17, 12, as if some ominous fate overtook him. John and Luke also say that Judas' betrayal fulfilled scripture, but their interpretation of the Old Testament to reach that New Testament conclusion would make most Bible readers scratch their heads. Luke also writes, thirdly, that, quote, Satan entered Judas to betray Jesus. I don't find any of these explanations satisfying or illuminating. And by the way, if you read the Exodus narrative carefully, you'll find a similar explanation for Pharaoh's hard heart. It's described as both an act of God and a consequence of Pharaoh's own choices. And at a fourth level, we should not patronize Judas as a mere pawn. He did what he did for his own complex motives, most of which are lost to us today. He received his infamous 30 pieces of silver, but I'm sure that other factors came into play, including some that he himself could not fathom. Perhaps it was natural that 150 years later, some Gnostics gave Judas's reputation a makeover. The Gospel of Judas that was rediscovered not long ago, a 3rd or 4th century Coptic translation from the original Greek that contains very little that is specifically Christian, it portrays Judas as a hero who betrays Jesus at his own request and not as the quintessential villain. As for Judas's own convoluted motives and their tragic outcome, I would make three observations. First, Judas's betrayal of Jesus is unremarkable. Peter denied that he would ever deny the Lord, but he did so three times. The other 11 all made the same promise, but when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples deserted him and fled. We should never deny our capacity for denial. Second, after betrayal and denial, Judas and Peter responded in similar ways. After aiding and abetting in the condemnation of Jesus, Judas was filled with remorse and returned the blood money. Peter broke down and wept. And finally, in playing the most undesirable role in all human history. In some sense, Judas took our place and triggered the events that led to the greatest good for all humanity, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Judas's betrayal might be construed like Aquinas interpreted Adam's fortunate crime, O Felix Coppola. At any rate, St. Augustine is hardly the only believer to hope that, quote, even from my sins, God has drawn good. The selection of Matthias to replace Judas is likewise murky. Peter invokes Psalm 109, verse 8, to validate the roll of the dice with the imprimatur of prophetic fulfillment. 
may another take his place of leadership. At a more mundane level, the eleven remaining apostles simply nominated two candidates, Acts 1.23. When they prayed, they confessed that God himself had already chosen the right person, and that their task was to decipher the divine predetermination. And finally, the apostles resorted to dumb luck to ascertain the divine intent. A roll of the dice identified Matthias instead of the alternate Joseph called Barsabbas. Then what happened? We don't know, because this is the only biblical reference to Matthias. There are even later conjectures about Matthias's exact identity, that perhaps he was Zacchaeus, Barnabas, or Nathaniel. In the 14th century, Nicephorus said that Matthias preached and then died in the Caucasus region of Georgia. The 5th century synopsis of Dorotheus says that Matthias proclaimed the gospel to, quote, the barbarians and the meat-eaters in the interior of Ethiopia. A third legend says that Matthias was stoned and beheaded in Jerusalem. And a fourth tradition even says his bones are buried in Trier, Germany. So the mystery of Matthias's personal destiny thus includes great historical obscurity. Contemplating this dance of human decision in divine destiny, I thought of John Milton, perhaps the greatest poet of the English language. Struck blind at the age of 44, in a sonnet, Milton ponders why God would gift him with remarkable talents, only to take them back. The ways of God felt harsh and arbitrary. Plunged into a world of darkness, listen to his sonnet. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, in that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve thee there with my Maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide, doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask? But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed, in post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Patience, humility, availability, and even resignation to the inscrutabilities of divine designs all serve us well. In the words of Milton's near contemporary George Herbert, it's best to, quote, leave thy cold dispute about what is fit or not. Whoever we are and wherever we are, a rock star like Edge, an infamous scapegoat like Judas, an obscure apostle like Matthias, or a struggling poet like Milton. We can all serve him best, right where we are, 
even as Milton said, when we only stand and wait. For books this week, I review Elaine Pagel's Revelations, Visions, Prophecy, and Politics in the Book of Revelation. New York Viking, 2012, 246 pages. No book in the Bible has provoked more controversy, speculation, or misunderstanding than the very last one, Revelation. In the 4th century, notable scholars like Chrysostom and Eusebius hesitated to include it in the canon. Martin Luther described it as, quote, neither apostolic nor prophetic. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. Calvin wrote commentaries on every book in the New Testament, except Revelation. Among Eastern Orthodox believers, Revelation is the only book not read in their public liturgy. As Elaine Pagels notes in her most recent popular book, Revelation, the book barely squeezed into the canon. Pagel sees John as, of Patmos as a Jewish prophet in the tradition of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, all of whom wrote what she calls wartime literature. John's revelation is a piece of anti-Roman propaganda. Writing as he was a few decades after Rome ransacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. Revelation, she says, is also a polemic against those whom John castigates as, quote, a synagogue of Satan, and those who, quote, say they are Jews and are not. For Pagels, the synagogue of Satan are not actual Jews who were attacking Christians, but rather Gentile converts of Paul who rejected distinctives like the Mosaic Law. But what especially interests Pagels are the dozens of other revelations, plural, found in the early apocryphal literature. She admits that these aren't apocalyptic texts like Revelation, or in many cases, are they even Christian? Just ten years after the intense persecution under Diocletian, Constantine converted and outlawed all competing sects and claims of Revelation as heretical. Interpretations of the book of Revelation then flipped. No longer did readers see pagan persecutors as their enemies. Rather, the Whore of Babylon and the Beast were marginalized revelations that people like Athanasius wanted to suppress in the name of an orthodox agenda of creed, clergy, and canon. Pagels writes history with a purpose. It's to grant spiritual parity to these many revelations that were excluded from the canon as heretical. The last sentence of her book arrives at the destination that was never in doubt. And I quote, Unlike those who insist that they already have all the answers they'll ever need, these sources invite us to recognize our own truths, to find our own voice, and to seek revelation not only past, but ongoing. 
Maybe that's fair enough, but you'll need other sources to help think about whether a revelation claim might be wrong and take you tragically far afield, or whether being wrong even matters. Why should one reject the revelation claims of David Koresh, but accept those of a Buddhist monk, or vice versa? I can't imagine Pagels would endorse the idea, but she makes it sound like it's impossible to be wrong. Elaine Pagels, Revelations. For film this week, we go to Zimbabwe in a movie documentary called Tapestries of Hope from the year 2009. When filmmaker Michael Ann Christine Risley heard that in Africa it was common for men to rape a virgin in order to cure HIV-AIDS, she thought it was a rumor. That's until she heard Betty Makoni of Zimbabwe speak at a conference. Makoni was raped at the age of six, then saw her mother beaten to death by her father when she was nine. McConey went on to found the Girl-Child Network. Risley was so taken by McConey's story that she traveled to Zimbabwe and documented McConey's story in the Girls of GCN. This film, Tapestries of Hope, features very frank discussions of sexual violence against women. Risley interviews not only the girls, but also the traditional healers who encourage the practice of raping virgins, and, in, and even one of the rapists. For her efforts, Risley was herself imprisoned in Zimbabwe, then deported to South Africa. Tapestries of Hope was first released in late 2009 at several film festivals. I learned about this film at our church, where the Women's Commission featured it at film night. To learn more, see the two websites, tapestriesofhope.com and freshwaterhaven.org. Tapestries of Hope, 2009, Zimbabwe. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem called Now I Become Myself by May Sarton. May Sarton lived from 1912 to 1995. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning. Hurry, you will be dead before, what, before you reach the morning, or the end of the poem is clear, or love safe in the walled city? Now to stand still, to be here, Fear, feel my own weight and density. The black shadow on the paper is my hand, the shadow of a word as thought shapes the shaper, falls heavy on the page is heard. All fuses now, falls into place from wish to action, word to silence, my work 
my love, my time, my face gathered into one intense gesture of growing like a plant. As slowly as the ripening fruit, fertile, detached, and always spent, falls but does not exhaust the root. So all the poem is, can give, grows in me to become the song, made so and rooted so by love. Now there is time, and time is young. Oh, in this single hour I love all of myself and do not move. I, the pursued, who madly ran, stand still, stand still, and stop the sun. May certain, now I become myself. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 20th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.